Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat well, 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 we're back on Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3CR. The Empress Dowager Dale is with us. She's working hard. She'll make sure that we can hear all the guests. And today, I've done something I've always wanted to do. I'm in the same room with a man and his son. Mm. You know, you have those dreams about a woman and their daughter, but that's a different <laughs> story. <laughs> right. In in the studio, we have John Van Wienen and his son, Mansoor Van Wienen. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you? Wow. That voice reminds me of the old dart. Are you from the old dart? No, 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 not at all. We're, we're from England, but... Uh, well, that's the old art, you know that. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that? No, I didn't know. We used to say in the old days, you know, if you came from England, you're from the old dart, because oh. when the convicts used to come out, they had a little dart painted on their uh, ah, shirts. So the, right. you're from the old dart, you're from England. Okay, I can't <laughs> go back quite as far as the convicts. Can't I have you? to tell you that, Joe. Really? Yeah. What year were you born, John? 1941. You've almost had confidence, which is not far. 41. Yeah, thank you. Now, you haven't had Botox, have you? No, I haven't had oh, Botox. Yeah. I've, had, I've had nothing. You've had nothing. No it? enhancements whatsoever. Yeah, it's lucky this is um, radio because you look at about 45 to me. Oh, thank you. John? And, yeah. and, uh, what are you after? Yeah. <laughs> Your son. Uh, <laughs> How are you? Oh, very well, thank you very much. Yeah, so you got a freebie here. Did you, Dad decide to take you back to the older? Back to Australia. Well, reading the book... You, you oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I run the show. Nobody <laughs> knows about the book yet. You've got an hour. Relax. I'll bring the book in when we need it. Is this your first trip to Australia? It's my second trip second to Australia. Trip. When was the last one? I was six years old in 1991. Oh, so there's a big change. You wouldn't remember, would you? No, so this is kind of like my real first-time experience. Really? Yeah, it's good to have you here. We weren't going to interview you, but you know, I ran into you in the coffee shop before we started the interview, so I thought, why not? Why not? Now, John, mm. what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? The first thing I remember, I was two years old. I was lying, it was 1943. Mm. I was lying in bed with my parents. Mm. We had an Anderson air raid shelter. Yep. Bombs were dropping. And that's what I remember. Um, the roof of the bed was a cast iron sheet and it was only about two feet above my parents' uh, faces. Mm. Mother on the left-hand side, father on the right. I was sandwiched, being the only child at that time, in the middle. And I could look up and see the iron sheet 
and all I could hear was a, a strange whining noise. They were the uh, pilotless doodle bugs, mm. and then it would go quiet, and after a few seconds, the explosion. And I was lying there, I was, I was only about two, I was scared, and I could feel my parents trembling, they were scared as well. Mm. That was my mm. first experience. Mm. Well, we had a, another English lady here, Irene. I was interviewing her, and she was about your age, and she had the same similar experience, but her parents were a little bit more imaginative than yours. They told her that uh, the, it was a party, and that that's why there was all the noise, and the fireworks were in the sky. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she believed them, I'm of sure. Of course, she was three, so yeah, she great. believed them. But Fantastic. it kept her quiet in, in the air raid shelter. Yeah, I understand. Now, she was in an air raid shelter, yes. was she? I wasn't. No, you were at I, home. I was at home, yeah. and we all had that bed, yeah. and it was spooky, yeah. horrible. Were you bombed again? Oh, yes, several yeah. times. Several times, And yeah. But uh, when the bombs went off, all the windows rattled. Mm. I remember hearing the rattling of the windows, mm. and it wasn't. Uh, I didn't know what it was all about. They tried to pacify me, mm. but I could feel, even at two, which is way back, I could feel the stress and the emotion in their bodies as they mm. were close to me, mm. trying to protect me. Mm. I assume at the end of the war you were, uh, you were running around the debris. What was it like? Horrid. Bad. What, what do you remember? Well, I remember there were no real open spaces to play. It was just bomb sites, mm. bricks piled up, nowhere to go, nowhere to play, but you, you make games, you know, children do. Mm. But it wasn't a nice experience growing up. No. Bad. So, so where, where did you grow up in England? Grew up in Enfield in Middlesex in oh. North London. Yeah, I was born in 41, so I, that's where I stayed. Big family, five children, parents fighting to keep the children safe. Mm. keep them fed, one wage from my father, who was uh, a labourer, who was a pipe lagger. At, uh, What's a, a pipe lagger? A pipe lagger, he worked in a power station and all the hot water pipes, I, su- I assume they're hot water, were lagged with asbestos. Yeah, right. yeah. So consequently, years later, or he died at an early age mm. uh, from asbestosis and emphysema it got him now getting back to the living arrangements how many rooms did you live in the family of seven of you there were four four rooms in the house Mm. uh three-story house but and rented they rented rented the house they didn't know all the time wasn't a council home no no rented house they 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 didn't own it Mm. and uh, they never owned their house ever Right. What type of toys would you have had as a child? Would you have anything? Or? Well, I remember a cardboard box. Mm. We made, uh, I'm not sure what came in the cardboard box, <laughs> but we ended up making a car a car out of it mm. with a piece of string. Right. Mm-hmm. And I used to pull my brothers around in this car. Uh, right. But uh, we were happy. Mm. And if you compare that today to what kids get at Christmas time, yeah. all these computer games, you mm. know, and things, mm. and they open up the box and they throw them away, let's have the next one. Mm. They're spoiled, I'm afraid. So you went to the local primary school, I assume, with your brothers and sisters? Went to a local state school, mm. uh, and right through my life, uh, uh, school life, I went to state schools, never did any, any good, really. Was put down by the teachers, they weren't interested and uh, left what, what, what do you mean put down? Put down verbally or just uh, not? Verbally. Well, for no. example, in my report when I left at 14, mm. the headmaster wrote, uh, John Van Wien 
leaves this school after four years, unfortunately, he will not amount to anything. Oh. Yeah, that's, that was what it was like. I had reports yeah. like that. Yeah. I had reports like that. That's, you know, kids were basically treated really roughly. Well, it, it goes to show you mm. that educators mm. can say things like that to children, mm. how wrong they were, mm. because it puts the thought in the child's mind, well, he's, he's an educated man, our headmaster, and he must know, so I'm not going to amount to anything. So why should I even try? Mm-hmm. That's the message that he got across. Mm. Where does your surname come from? Have you been able to look at that? Or? Van Wienen comes from uh, four generations previously when my great-great-grandfather emigrated from Holland, from Amsterdam, to the UK. He was a lawyer. I know very little about him. Uh, or the family, mm. and there is one occasion that you may mention lately when I went to meet the only surviving Van Wienen in yes, Adelaide. That wasn't pleasant, was it? We'll no. keep that. We'll keep that in reserve. I, uh, okay. I almost had a tear too. Was I? Oh, uh, did you? Yeah, but I thought typical, typical migrant. You yeah, know, you know. <laughs> typical, typical. Yeah, All right, Get, going back. So at fourteen, what's a fourteen-year-old do in England? In what's that? Mid fifties. What do you do? Left school, didn't know what to do, had no direction, had no help from my parents. You see, at that time, the war, the war was over. There was a depression. Uh, people were very much aware of what had happened during the war, how Hitler had been across the Channel. He'd gone through Europe like a knife through butter. The, every, countries like French had capitulated, and we were next. If it hadn't been for the Americans coming in and uh, supporting and bringing in their firepower, we would have been beaten. He would have come. Mm. But, of course, when the Americans did come, there were, uh, I think Churchill had to sign an agreement with them that whatever they put in, we would pay for. I think we finished paying a few years ago. Millions and millions and millions, probably billions. Billions, And we finally paid it all back. Mm. It was 40 or 50 years to pay it back. I remember we used to make up little parcels for people in England. Yes. You know, with uh, uh, butter, lard, yeah. lard and, and send it across. You didn't actually receive any of those parcels, did you? No, I never, but um, uh. Uh, my my parents were... Um, really, they were so poor that their butter allowance, I remember, mm. uh, was bought by a lady up the road who could afford it, mm. and she wanted to support the children. Mm. So things like butter... Um, Russian books, of course, mm. uh, we gave away, or she gave away, mm. to get money to buy other foods to feed us. Mm. It was a hard time. Very hard. So what did you do to earn a buck at 14? Um, I cleaned cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cleaned cars in my spare time. I then to, went to work in the garage mm. uh, as an apprentice motor mechanic. That never worked out because the... Uh, Owner of the garage had me working, greasing cars, uh, changing punctures, mending punctures, mm. changing wheels, and that's all I did for a year and a half. And I, when I approached him about my indenture papers, mm. he said that they'll come later, and they should have come months or a year before, but they didn't. Mm. He didn't appear to have any intention of apprenticing me let alone sending me to school one day a week, Mm. because if you sent me to school, then 25% of my working time, or 20% rather, Mm. 
would have been wasted, he wouldn't be getting the money in. Yeah. So I left. Mm. And uh, he, then he changed his tune. He mm. said, John, you can't leave. You're going to be apprentice. I said, you should have done it sooner. Yeah. Why didn't yeah. you do it before? He had no answer to it. No. And I walked out, I left him. So, so, so life was, wasn't brilliant, you know, for a 17, 18-year-old in London in those days, was it? Or? No, it, it depended on where you came from, your background, mm. uh, whether your family had money, whether they were affluent. Mine certainly weren't. The more I got into it, the more I was there, the more I realised that I didn't actually belong there. Mm. Tell us about that poster you saw that uh, changed your life. Oh, the immigration poster, yeah. Well, this now you're jumping forward now. I so want to I, jump I, forward, I was yeah. about 21, yeah. I guess. I saw a poster um, in, I can't, I can't remember where it was, but it, it was in the UK, and it was a beautiful beach, and I later found the beach because I, I went there and it was Horseshoe Bay at Port Elliot mm. in Adelaide in South Australia and there was this magnificent Horseshoe Beach in fact Mansell and I went there last week when we were in Adelaide mm. to, I showed him the beach Mansell what did you think? Well the beach was, was beautiful it was hot mm. and I can imagine my father looking back and seeing the appeal, the excitement, the adventure, and wanting to spend a life surfing. So <laughs> very, very uh, appealing. Very I appealing. want to move out of here myself. Uh, so the few years before that, between 14 and 21, did you do odd jobs or did you get an experience yeah, in something? <clears throat> I drove motorbikes like most boys do. Oh, ah, right. Became yeah. a motorbike. Without a helmet, obviously, and leather jacket. Oh, uh, well, you know about that. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, period. you're right. Worked as a motorcycle mechanic, yeah. worked as a lifeguard at a swimming pool for three oh, years, God. enjoyed that. But then it got to the point where I was working for an insurance company and then I saw this poster about Australia. Yeah. And all the bump that newspapers were putting out, that the government were putting out, about this land of milk and honey right. on the other side of the world and with conditions for working-class people... I say that, they weren't good. There was a massive temptation for people to leave. And between a million and a quarter and a million and a half did leave. Yeah. Mm. And they paid their £10 to do so. so. You had a bit of a false start, did you, to get here? To get into Australia? To Australia. The mates at the pub or...? No, no. I, I got in OK. There wasn't any no, no, I mean initially, initially. You, uh, uh, you fought about it a while? Or? Well, I actually... Before Australia, uh, I just wanted to get away. Mm. I wanted to escape, to escape the way things were. I wasn't happy with it. And I got my buddies together, there were five of us, mm. or six of us all together, and we planned to go to Europe on a trip, on a road trip, just mm. get away from England. We are all going to go in my car. It would have been tight. We couldn't get six. What did you have? I had a Ford Zephyr Zodiac. Ah, I had a Zephyr Zodiac. Was yours blue and white? Yes, it was. Ah, yeah. Did you have the Benetian blind at the back? No, I didn't, did, but no. it was blue and white. Yeah, blue yeah. and white. Oh, yeah, that went forever. That went shirt. forever. That went forever. Yeah. yeah. So we were going in my car, and I did everything <laughs> for everyone. I, I organised it. And I got the rations and the petrol coupons yeah. to get the petrol, and we were going to go around Europe. And then we used to meet every week in a pub have a drink, and plan what we were doing. Everyone was excited. Then one boy dropped out. Mm. Then another chap dropped out. 
Then a third one couldn't leave his girlfriend. And on <laughs> oh, poor lad. The, yeah, the day before we were leaving, yeah. or the night before we were leaving, I sat in the pub alone. <laughs> They'd all gone. You stood up at the old. <laughs> no one there. <laughs> no one there. And the barman even said, uh, or the owner of the pub, uh, Mr. Fermin, Tiggy Fermin, he said, so they've all left you, have they, boy? Boy. <laughs> boy. I said, yes, they have. Yeah. And yeah. they're gone. Right. And they didn't want to go. Yeah. So it was a learning experience for me because I was relying on other people to do what I wanted to do. Mm. And I thought, no, that doesn't work. Mm. If you want to do something in life, you have to do it, do it yourself. yourself. Yeah, that's a good lesson. So you wangled your brothers to go with you, did you? Well, I made up my mind to go, went to Australia House in the Old Rich in the Strand in London and arranged to go, applied to go. The two boys heard that I was going mm. and one of them said, could he come with me? I said, you can, of course you can. It's what to do. Then the other one said, oh, I'd like to come as well, the youngest one. So I said, look. How old was he? He was 16. 16. Yeah. Right, right. I said, look, if you want to go to Australia, I am going mm. for sure. If you want to go, you're welcome to come with me. If you change your mind, that's okay. I don't mind, yeah? But I'm going. And they both came with me. They both came with you. Yeah. Right. What did your parents think of this? Well, they were upset. And right at the, uh, the going away at the station, they came to see us off. Uh, our mother had lost three boys mm. in one fell swoop. Mm. So uh, she was crying. She was upset. And uh, she said, uh, you go, you enjoy yourselves, you have a good time, you want adventure, see the world. We can't offer you that. There's no way we could do that. Mm. But please, will you come back after two years? So we promised her we'd come back. What was this magic two years? Well, it was a fact that we found out in the end. Right. We weren't told initially <laughs> right. that if you paid your £10 and went to Australia as an assisted migrant, okay, the government paid the balance of the fare. Now, at that time, the fare was about £300 on the ship there. That's real money. Yeah, a lot of money. So we paid 10 and they paid £290. That, but they didn't tell you that if you wanted to come back, that your passport was going to be confiscated and you couldn't come back until you'd done the two-year period. Mm. And then you could pay your own fare, and that £300, and come back. If you wanted to come back before, you had to pay the fare back and the fare out, less £10. And no one had that kind of money. Money. So you're basically hostages. Yeah. Cheap labour. We were cheap labour, I Mm. guess. But there were connotations, I think, with what had gone on years before with the early migrants that came to Australia. And dare I say, the convicts. Mm. They came into one's mind. That's right. <laughs> because we were in prison for two right. years. Yeah, yeah, hostages. Well, yeah. you were willing hostages. Life was so boring. Yeah. So obviously um, they uh, organised jumbo jets for you to come across, did they? They did, but yeah. we, we came by ship. Ship. <laughs> yeah, they chose how you came. <laughs> so tell us about the ship. Well, the ship, uh, the Iberia, the SS Iberia, 29,000-tonne liner, it was uh, a lovely ship. But, again, and there is a but, so what I've just said about this lovely ship is negated 
because I'm that now going to tell you, it was it was a migrant ship. It was a passenger boat that had been turned into a migrant ship. Therefore, we were on F deck, right down the bottom. If you drilled a hole in the floor, water would come in. Right. There was no porthole. Mm. We were below the water line mm. for over a month. How many of you, three or more than three? Well, there were three of us and three others. Right. So the first day, we were introduced to three strangers. Mm. And it, it, was, it, it wasn't comfortable getting into your little bunk bed at night, knowing two feet away from you was someone mm. you just didn't know, you know, you... You might wake up with a knife between your shoulder blades or something. You just didn't know mm. who people were. Mm. And as the eldest brother, you obviously felt I was responsible for the other towards two. the other two, yeah. yeah. Uh, what was the trip like? Did anything happen that's of, of any interest um, to anybody apart from you? Well, I was fortunate enough, um, on the first day, believe it or not, uh, a lady came into the, knocked on the door of the cabin. Mm. Knocked on the door, came in. She was in her mid-40s. And she was the mother of one of the young chaps in our cabin. Mm. She introduced herself. And behind her was a young girl, a 16-year-old girl. Mm. And she introduced her and we said hello. Well, I looked at this girl, her name was Joan, and she was the spitting image of a young Elizabeth Taylor. Mm. Very beautiful. Long, dark hair with a wave, blue eyes, and dare I say, a very generous mouth. Mm. She was absolutely beautiful, stunning. Mm. And she hadn't had any, any work done. Mm. <laughs> and we came together and we talked. We met that night for dinner. And we crossed the ocean all the way to Australia mm. together, spent most nights looking at the stars up on the top deck. It would be, be like magic. It was beautiful. Yeah. And we were together and we fell in love. How old were you, 21? 22. And she was 16. What did the, uh, her parents think about all this? Well, her father had died of mm. a heart attack, mm. so the mother had brought the two children away. Mm. Uh, they were sad. They were still grieving for the father. Mm. Uh, the mother was fine. She kept an eye on her daughter mm. Mm. Uh, because of these, uh, this apparent wily Cockney chap. Right. Although I wasn't a Cockney. <laughs> But she assumed I was. And his two brothers. I, sp I spoke yeah. different from the Mancunians. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, she was fine. I looked after her. Yeah. And what, what do you think about all this, Mansell? It's a great story reading about it. And it's it's a life of adventure. And, not, and in England right now, not a lot of young men actually get out and do these things. Obviously, you've got these, these holidays now and backpacking, but mm. back then, mm. from what I read, it wasn't the norm. It was mm. unusual. It was almost like you're a pioneer, mm. and it's, it's, it's such a great time to read up on. When, when your dad was writing the book, The uh, Ten Pound Poms, Australia, was it about 1964, did he actually involve you in the writing? Yes, very much so. I got to read every page as it came out the printer, mm -hmm. and it was really good. And I was the first person to point out, uh, Mr. Com com comma here, a full stop, punctuation mark, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and but and also I I, I was the first p person to point out the book's ten pounds. You haven't actually put. put Inflation, and it worked out <laughs> yeah. that 
£10 was about £300 worth in today's money, and the full fare was just under £6,000. Somebody was making a buck out of it. Mm. Indeed. All these migrants coming across. All right, so where did you end up in in Australia? Adelaide. Adelaide. I hate to say this, but why Adelaide? Well... Do you know, I don't know why. Oh, I do know. Yes, I do. Our sponsor, a lady, Doris Doofy, uh, she sponsored us. Mm. She was related to the Van Wienens somehow, and she very kindly sponsored us. She's passed away now. Mm. So uh, we were very grateful for her, and she lived in Adelaide. So that's where we went. I assume you had hundreds of pounds in your pockets when you arrived? Um, I had about (laughs) £20 uh, saved. My two brothers had two or three pounds because mm. they spent a little bit on the boat mm. uh, over a month, uh, and that was it. I assume Social Security came down and offered you some money, didn't they, the Australian Social Security? Joe, I'm afraid they didn't. And <laughs> what do you mean they didn't? No, and you know they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the listeners may not know. This is interesting, isn't it? Yes. You come here on ten pounds, you're not promised a job, mm. you turn up, yeah. and there's no support. No. No, nobody's saying, no welcome, ben- well, welcome here, son. No, no uh, welcome, no benefits. There was nothing. It was really bad. Mm. And we were going to places. We got off the game plank and walked down. Mm. We met our sponsor. She booked us in at the YMCA in oh, Adelaide. That's nice. Well, you say nice. Three <laughs> da- no, you're nodding your head now. Three days. Well, there were drug addicts up on the roof the first night, creating and banging and mm-hmm. out of their minds. Well, and so we, we decided that wasn't the place for us to stay. Right, right. So we, we never told our sponsor. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't want to hurt our feelings. Right. They didn't have lice and bed bugs too? It was, ever, it was grotty. <laughs> grotty. <laughs> I, I'm sure the YMCA now, as all YMCAs, are good. Mm. But in those days, they weren't. Yeah, we've got a history of this. It's like the um, returned servicemen from Vietnam. They just basically dumped them back and that was that. Yeah. yeah same concept. Yeah. So you come here. You're stuck in this foreign place. You've got two younger brothers you're responsible for. Yeah. So how do you make a buck? If it's, if it's dishonest, don't tell me. No, it's not dishonest. <laughs> no, wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, we, I went to work for the Temperance and General Insurance Company, T&G. Mm. They were on the corner of uh, Grenfell Street in Oh, because you had insurance experience in England. Yeah. Yeah. And so I carried on. Uh, An English family asked me, would I do it? Uh, They knew that I had it. And the company was crying out for English people with experience. So Mm. I couldn't get another job. And I thought, well, that's what I know. I'll go and do that. So I did. And um, I I got on okay. But um, this brings me to uh, another point that you may be interested in. What what I did, I had a round, a debit, it's Mm. called. Mm. So I would go around every week to collect insurance premiums mm. from customers. Now, they gave me a round at Henley Beach on the coast. Well, my previous round in London was in Camden Town. Now, right now, it's very fashionable. Then it wasn't. Oh, it was the pits. Yeah. Absolutely diabolical. And I, I used to be scared to go into some houses to collect the premiums. <laughs> in case they'd mug me. They knew I had money. Uh, uh, but it never happened, but it could have done. Mm. And there was a lot of problems. So when they gave me this round in Henley Beach and Grange, um, it was like another world. So I put my thinking cap on 
because um, I wanted to make one or two changes, but I didn't let the office in Adelaide know. Mm. So I went round to all the people on my round, and there were 400 people, houses. What, you walk from house to house? Yeah, I walk, walk mm. from house. 400 houses. So I, got, I went round, and I spent a bit longer this particular week, and I asked all the people who were paying their premiums, would they please help me and pay their premium on the first week of the month, mm. which they did. I, I see where this is going, mate. Yeah, you know where this is going. <laughs> so, for th- one week of the month, I worked quite hard. <laughs> for three weeks, I went surfing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the first time you went surfing, because obviously you would have never been surfing before. No. Well, I, I went to where the waves weren't too big. We went down to the beaches at Moana and Norlunga and yeah. Seabird down in SA. And uh, gradually, but uh, it was lovely. You had to watch out for sharks yeah, or sometimes, yeah. you know, dangerous. But there you are. It yeah, was Because um, there's a nice picture of you in the front of the book. There's a strapping young gentleman with a surfboard. Yeah. A large surfboard. It was. <laughs> They're smaller now, aren't They're they? much smaller. Yeah. And you've got no ankle uh, no. tie. But yeah. people, when they first look at that, yeah. they assume that I'm actually naked. Oh, I didn't assume that at all. No, thank you. Oh, I know but what if you look like. very carefully, you will see the bottom of my swimming costume. Right. But well, there's not, not much of it I, showing I, I, behind look, the board. Uh, yeah, well, with, with my eyes, I don't oh. think I'd pick it up. So did you continue your relationship with Jane when you got to yeah, Australia? Yeah. Well, um, um, when we left at the ship, uh, she said, uh, will I see you again? Uh, when will I see you again? So I said, look, I've got, a, I've got to get some money. I've got to get a job. Mm. We've got to find somewhere to live. I said, don't worry. I know where you are. You're at Port Elliot. I said, I'll find you. Mm. And I and will come. You? And did you? Six weeks later, I did. Mm-hmm. I drove down there. The boys came with me. I went across into the bay, the sand dunes, where the caravans are at the back. Mm. And there, sitting by the ocean by the great waves coming in and crashing on the sand, there she was, this little forlorn figure. Mm. And um, I shouted at but she couldn't hear me, first of all. Mm. So I got closer to her, then she heard me, she turned around, and we ran into each other's arms. It's like a movie. Yep. It's like a movie, but it's real. Yeah. Oh, look at her. Yeah. Look at her. And she, she's pretty hard, that woman, I tell you. She's not. She's, not, she's no, no romantic, Dale. She's a woman. <laughs> All right. Well, we and that was lovely. And we were together then. And, and then, did you, then did you stay together? I used to, I used to see her all yeah. the time. I'd drive yeah. there. It wasn't far. It was no. 60 miles. Right. And I'd see her. Yeah. And then eventually they got a house in Elizabeth mm. where most of the British migrants were. Yeah. And so they were nearer to where we were because we'd moved to Semaphore. Mm. Now, all your, your experiences in uh, Adelaide weren't all good, were they? No. <laughs> um, we had one very bad experience. We rented our apartment at Henley Beach by the week and we moved into the apartment right on the seafront, lovely. And we were there for four months and then one day the estate agent came uh, and knocked at our door. He said, you must leave tomorrow. So we said, why? We pay by the week? Surely we're entitled to a a week's uh, uh, notice. He said, no, the landlord wants his property back. You must leave tomorrow. I said, well, I'm sorry. We've nowhere to go to. So on the Friday, we packed up 
loaded the Zephyr up, we're all ready to go, and this man appeared at the gate, the garden gate. He was huge. He must have weighed 20 stone, he was about 6 foot 5, and he stood there like Goliath. And I felt like David. <laughs> and he came down and started to argue. He followed me into the kitchen. He brought five or six or even seven guys with him from his building company. They'd all been drinking and they came to sort us out. I don't know why. Purely, I suppose, because we didn't leave a week or six days earlier when he wanted us out. Mm. And the reason he wanted us out was because he could double the rent and sell it during the Christmas period to the miners from Mount Isa and the interior. Mm. So he swung a punch at my head and I pulled my face back and it missed me. Fortunately, I ran outside into the garden and then the whole fiasco started. He kicked and punched me and laid on top of me and I couldn't move him. He was a, a ton weight. And my brothers were attacked and Jeff, the youngest one, was made unconscious with a kick, a kick to the groin. And Gary was hurt. And in the end, uh, it, it came to an end uh, when the police came. Mm. Uh, he got the worst of it in some respects. Uh, but uh, I, I certainly suffered. The police, the police officer in charge, he heard his story, heard our story. We were three English migrants penniless as far as they were concerned and troublemakers and we hadn't put a foot wrong we hadn't done anything wrong and he said the police officer said I don't know where you're going to but go and never never come back Mm. you ended up in hospital didn't you and three weeks in the Adelaide hospital right what were your injuries the orbit bone was broken in my left eye Mm. my face was uh, something was cracked in the jaw. I had ribs broken. Mm. My groin had changed colour right. uh, from repeated kicks and knees. And uh, it took me three weeks to get over it. They were worried about my eye, my eyesight, so they kept me. But I had a contraption on my head. I felt like the man in the iron mask, mm. Alexander Dumas. And how did you know your brothers cope? How, how, they were bad, but they, they got let out after a short time. Mm. And obviously there were no charges, nothing. Every... No, no one bothered. There was no, no one Just three penniless English migrants. Yeah, we thought, let's go. Let's leave, put it behind us. Let's move on. Mm, I think it's right. And that's what we did. Now, you went to a few places in Australia that were interesting for, for the two years you were here. Mm. Where did you go? We went to, well, there's a story that I think you might be interested in. Um, I came home with the Adelaide Advertiser one day, and there on the front cover in headlines was uh, three young 14-year-old boys strike it rich at Andamooka in the opal fields. It's everybody's dream, you know. Yeah. And they came back to Adelaide and apparently they sold their opals, I think, for £10,000 or dollars. I'm not sure what it was then, pounds. Mm, mm. And they made a fortune, these three kids. So I showed my brothers and I said, what do you think? They said, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Let's go and make the money now. <laughs> this is it. Let's take our mother home a beautiful opal uh, ring. Yeah. So 
went into the city, bought the miners' rights, uh, bought all the picks and shovels and buckets and everything, uh, uh. loaded up the Zephyr, and off we went. Drove north out to Lisbon, way out to Port Augusta, and then way out to Andamuka yeah, yeah. on the little. Have you and been every, there? Yeah, I've been. I was at, I was just actually there about two months ago. Well, but that's, really? that's why I'm laughing. Ah, yeah. Well, I don't. I, I, think I mean, I mean, for every, everybody. No, well, yeah. a little bit. It's the Australian. Used to be not now, but it used to be the Australian male fantasy. You'd go to Cooper Petey or the, the Opal, and you'll. You'd find your fortune. I, yeah. s- I assume you and your brothers found a fortune, did you? Uh, <laughs> we found nothing, Joe. <laughs> you knew the answer to that question before you even asked yeah, it. Yeah, but how many weeks did you waste? We didn't wait weeks. We <laughs> we tried different holes over a couple yeah, of days, yeah, yeah. and then we met a chap called Ben Cogsill, yeah. who was an old, I think they're called gougers, aren't they? Yeah, gougers, yeah. 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 I, I asked him, and I mentioned it in the book, I asked him where he thought. I said, Mr. Cogsill, where do you think we <laughs> might Cogsill. find some opal? And he wasn't used to being addressed as Mr. Mr. Cogsill. Right. <laughs> he looked at me. Well, I can't. The air went blue. <laughs> I can't tell you what he said. It, it was to the effect if, do you think if I knew where opals were, do you think I'd be up here for 32 years looking for the so-and-so, so-and-so? Yeah, a bit yeah. hot, wasn't it? We want all the bleeps coming in yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was a yeah. stupid question. Yeah. Yeah. He gave us a cup of water, yeah. one cup of water. Yeah. It was so hot. It was like it's been in Adelaide, Look, 42 years. I've got some good advice for you and your son, Yeah, yeah you and Mansell. Some good advice. You know, they're short of grape pickers up at Mulgirawai. I understand you're a, you're a gun grape. Grape picker? That, no, that was my that was my brother. <laughs> Your brother? <laughs> no, it, it was uh, yeah. My younger brother Jeff. He went great picking, but yeah. uh, another story. But uh, yeah, we went to a place called German Gully, and we found a, a working a hole in the ground that was sixty feet deep. All oh, right. And we pegged it out and yeah. staked our claim because it's such a. You got to be careful. It was so yeah. You it was such a careful. lawless place. There was no police. No, no that's right. You got to be careful. And they had guns, these chaps. Yeah, yeah. So when, when the three of us got there digging, we had one chap on top yeah, who was guard yeah. with the other two down there. That, right. And we were laying on our back, <laughs> chipping away. One interesting thing was I bought a lo- 48 candles, four dozen, and then in the heat, they're all welded together in the back boot of the car. <laughs> and so I had to get this big knife and slice them off. And we had ended up with triangular candles. <laughs> Amazing. Ah, well. Now, I want to get on to the rest of your life, so I'm going to bring the bit about Australia to a close. So how long did you last in Australia, you and your brothers? About 25 months. How about uh, Joan and her mother and brother? They came back with us. The brother oh. didn't. Joan came back and her mother. Right. Now, was this a common thing that uh, a lot of the migrants from England, the 10-pound palms, went back? Quite a lot went back. I, I don't know the exact figure. I'd say probably 30%. 30%. 25 30%, 30% went back. You see, these people, they, uh, the English people, they were promised, they were shown pictures, they pr- promised this, and they really thought the grass was greener on the other side. Mm. And it was, to- it was uh, explained that way by the officials at Australia House. Because the Australian government wanted Australia. They wanted white Europeans. 
there was a racist policy mm. and it was almost the case that they would do anything to get those people. Mm. And mm. so therefore, uh, that was the situation. Oh, that's right. They emptied out the orphanages and just sent kids across. Was yeah. A huge, There's uh, some horrible things horrible, that went Horrible, horrible things, horrible things. So... But you did do one positive thing in Australia after your uh, beating. What what did you stumble across in Adelaide? A school that kind of changed your, your life. Yeah, uh, it was when I came out of hospital. Yeah, I, I thought I can't let this happen again. Mm. I've got to do something to try to prevent it, and uh, we did. And Jeff and I, the youngest boy, we joined the karate club. And of course, after the fight, after being beaten up. Uh, we trained uh, vehemently mm. because, uh, and we trained with a vengeance uh, and a compassion because I was very angry. I was full of revenge, and it's the wrong thing, it's the wrong way to be, but uh, it's honest of me to say that I was, and I mm. was. So I just wanted to get this man back. I wanted to hit him and hurt him. I wanted to give him what he'd given to me. I couldn't help it. So I trained for seven days a week for months in karate. And we were quite good, quite fit at that time. Uh, pretty good anyway. And uh, after that, uh, it was then I met him once again. I met him... Well, did you give him a phone call, say, you know, Western show-off? How did you meet him? No, I, I'd been to the my insurance office. I'd been to my insurance office in... Uh, Adelaide, and uh, to give my books in. And when I came out, I walked down King William Street, and there, way up up front, uh, in front of me, head and shoulders above everyone else, there was this man coming towards me. Mm. And the heads were going up and down <laughs> as everyone was walking, and my palms started to sweat. I didn't know what, I knew it was him, I just knew. And as he got closer and closer, I thought, shall I hit him? Shall I follow him to his car? Shall I follow him home? I was just so full of revenge. It was bad. It was wrong. But I couldn't help how I felt. And when we got closer, we reached each other. Suddenly, as we drew level, he looked at me. I passed him, passed him by, mm. and I never looked back. And all the hate went out of my stomach, mm. out of my body. I was so pleased in the way that because of him, I found karate, this martial art. Right. Now, you went back to England. Did your relationship with Joan continue? Or? Yes, it continued. She went to Manchester. I saw her. We alternated trips. And then I had one day I received a letter from Japan. Japan? Japan. What year was this? This was 1960. Six, right. seven. Mm. And the letter was from uh, Mazutatsu Oyama, one of Japan's highest-graded karate teachers. And I'd written to him from Australia asking, could I come and be his student? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'll never get a reply. He replied to me, invited me to go and train with him. Well, this was such an honour uh, that... I really didn't want to let it go. It was an opportunity. Mm. So I spoke to Jane, I said, uh, Joan. I said, now look, Joan, I've got no career. I've got no plan. I've got no skill. I could go to Japan now for six months and train. Uh, 
if it's okay with you. When I come back, I can make a living, I can set up perhaps a business, but I can get into karate properly, and I'm sure we could have a good life together. Mm. So she was hurt and upset, so she said, okay, uh, you go, uh, and we wrote to each other regularly. Just on six months when I'd been there, a very fragile blue airmail letter came through my letterbox, mm. and I opened it up, and it was literally a Dear, dear John. John. <laughs> dear John, she said, I've, gone, I've met my old boyfriend, we've got together, and we're getting married. Well, there you are. I thought, well, that threw me, mm. and I left Tokyo at that point. Mm. I thought, I've got to get back to Zia. Right. I've got to Zia. So uh, she was in my mind. I had enough money from my English teaching job in Japan, in Tokyo, to get from uh, Haneda Airport in Tokyo to Los Angeles, mm. and I got there. When I came out in Los Angeles at the airport, there's a big concrete structure mm. outside the airport. Um, I thought, now what? I knew that New York was 3,000 miles away, right. and I had to get there. Yeah. And my old bank manager said he would send me £75 to pay the fare mm. if I could get to New York. New York. I came out of the airport and I looked around and thought, which is north, which is south? Where is Route 66? <laughs> I thought it went across. It doesn't. It goes up to Chicago. But it starts outside L.A. in um, uh, San Bernardino or one of those places. So I thought, what do I do now? I put my hand in my pocket and I had $11. What I may do here is I might tell people that uh, if they want to find out what happened in America, they need to buy the book. Because I want to go back to England because your life didn't finish after two okay, years in Joe. Australia. How did your karate um, career go? When I, when I came back from Japan... Mm. Um, I mean, generally in the last 40, 40 50 years. How, how, what's, what's been happening? Because we're running out. We've got only got about 10 minutes. Yeah, sorry. No, that's all right. So you, you've you haven't touched on Albania yet. No, you? I will in a minute. Uh, I just want to go to the karate. Um, I want to go to the karate. Did, I, did you, you I came back. Yeah. I, I started a club, then another club. And then I built up an association, right. the traditional association of Shodokan Karate. And it was a time when everyone wanted to learn karate. It was a thing. Uh, it was just before Bruce Lee appeared, mm. and that really exacerbated the whole thing. But my association built up. I graded under Japanese when they visited. My own instructor came to my dojo, my training hall, great regularly. Mm. Yeah, and he was great. And uh, then uh, I carried on teaching. At the, at just after that time, I had about a 1,000 students, mm, and they were great. And uh, I, I, I made a living. I didn't charge a fortune, but I made a living. Made a living. And it was comfortable, mm. and I was happy. I wasn't greedy. Mm. So did you meet another woman? Yes, I met this young man's mother. Well, that's a good thing that you met his oh, mother. Was, yeah, <laughs> I say. <laughs> yeah. What's her name? Jane. Jane. So Joan and Jane. Joan and Jane. <laughs> right. Yeah, I did. I did get confused occasionally, <laughs> Ooh, which is not not be. not a good thing, no, is it? No, it's not a good thing. So, are you still in karate? Yeah, I still teach only once a week now. Right. Uh, I'm seventy-seven. Right. So. Uh, uh, I've had to tone it down. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've got 
I've got about 50 black belts now, and they're running the clubs now while I'm away. Right, right. But I, I teach them on a Monday night, and they're very happy with that. Right. They, I tell them to go elsewhere, but they don't want to go. They want so to stay. So you're not the type of bloke, even at 77, a young bloke, a young buck would want to tangle with, are you? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. When I was young, I was okay. Now, right. I'm in, I've retired. I'm, I'm 77. In three years, I, I'll be <laughs> 80. Right. But um, I haven't forgotten what I've learned. Right. Now, you've, got a, you've done a lot of work with um, refugees and people who've had a really tough time. What part of Europe have you concentrated on? Well, my concentration really has been in Albania, mm-hmm. Macedonia, Kosovo, mm-hmm. uh, that area. Um, How but, did all that start? Well, it began when I saw... I saw uh, a BBC uh, newsreel. Bill Hamilton, the BBC correspondent, was out in um, Albania. But it was at the time of Romania and Ceausescu and all these orphan children uh, locked up in dungeons, you know, uh, mentally handicapped. They're all over the place. And then I heard Bill talking about things and he was from Albania. I thought, crikey, it's Albania as well. Well, he showed a picture of a little child, Jessica, Jessica Nigipi, and she was emaciated, malnourished, and she weighed, at that time, she weighed five months less than when she was born. Uh, poor little thing. Mm. And I didn't know, but when that picture was taken for BBC, she died that night. It had been uh, sent over by mm. satellite. And so I wanted to do something, and I thought, right, well, it's it's a long story, but to condense it into two or three sentences, uh, I met, by chance, the leader of the Albanian Democratic Party. And I told him, I got to see him, and he was surrounded by bodyguards. I got to talk to him. He said, if you really want to help my country, come. Mm-hmm. A week later, I was on the only flight that went to Albania because it had been shut for 50 years. Yes. No one went in, no one came out. And I got the flight. He, he came to the airport to meet me, and uh, he was a cardiologist. And he gave me their only car. He gave me his car mm. to go in. And this lady took me around, showed me everything. I came back, and I, I addressed all my karate people there were a thousand of them, and said, look, this is what the modern-day father of karate espoused, helping people, not kicking them just because you down because you can, mm-hmm. but helping them up. Mm-hmm. I said, I want you to help me. These people are dying. And there were thousands that were in that state. And everyone stood up, and they were behind me. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want, you've got. I had a thousand people. Fantastic. And so within three months, we got together the largest convoy of aid, 750 tonnes, that had ever left Britain mm. since World War II. We went out there, delivered it. Uh, well, we delivered it, mm. but his party, the Democrats, distributed it mm. because I had no distribution network. Yeah. And there's a funny twist here, an irony, that a year later, when the general election took place... Berisha, Sally Berisha, was voted in. His party won. They def- communis- communism 
was defeated and he became president of the country. Mm. So he never forgot that, mm. that I'd helped him when he was a no one yeah. and I helped him for, for the period. His party got the credit for, giving, for bringing the aid, aid yes. not the British, not, uh, but we didn't care about that. No. We didn't want kudos. No. We just wanted to do our job. Mm. They got the credit, and he said to me when I did dinner with him a couple of weeks later, he said, John, you don't realise what's happened here. Your efforts and what you did has defeated communism in this country. Mm. Oh, I said, well, please don't put that on me. He said, it's true. I said, what can I say? Now, this germ about helping people, it started in Adelaide, didn't it? You, you, give, a, you give an example, because you're a pretty self-centred uh, bloke, really, before, you know, and, and something touched you in Adelaide. You're right. Before I was, mm. you, you can, uh, you're quite right. My parents had never taught me about giving or doing anything to help. They just never... It never never occurred to them. I think they were so stressed with their own situation, they hadn't got time no. to think about others. Mm. And so uh, I was the same. That was all I thought about me, 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 me. Not until I saw one family in the Finsbury Migrant uh, Hostel, the Nissen Huts in Adelaide, and I said, to, they had five children, and I said to them, uh, have you got some money? Because I, I got to know them well. She said, yes, we have. Uh, we've got our savings in the UK. Mm. I said, would you mind if I ask how much it is? She said, well, we're broke now, but we've got £15 in England. Right. That's all they had. Mm. Husband, wife, five children. And it was end of November. He couldn't get a job. No company would take him on for Christmas and New Year. They'd have to pay him. And so... He was upset. He couldn't work. And she said to me, crying her eyes out, she said, sadly, Father Christmas won't be coming this year. Mm. Oh, whoa, hit me like a, a, a brick. So I just went out to Tom's supermarket, loaded up the carts, bought presents for the kids and brought everything back and delivered it all and gave it to them. Mm. She And, and you, something happened to you that hadn't happened before? Now... How you felt? Well, how I, how I felt about it, I felt uh, I felt a wonderful feeling inside of actually doing something to help other people, mm. and that was the first time I felt that feeling, and uh, it was important to me. And I realised it was something new, and it was real, and it was what was needed. Mm. When I saw this, I went back in January. He started work. So had she. The kids were happy. They cooked dinner for me and Joan, uh, mm. for Joan, yeah. yes, yes, sorry, Jane. for me yes. and Joan, <laughs> and, and they gave me a present, mm. and they gave me a, a, a mock-up mm. from the thornbirds. Lovely. Yeah, of Very a thornbird. Right. Did you ever meet Joan again? Yes, I did. Oh. I met her in 2018. Whoa, that's yes. just last year. Yes, I tracked her down on the internet. There were 134 Joan uh, Derbyshire's uh, in the internet. I looked through the pictures and there I saw a face of someone who might be her. But it's very hard because she would be a lot older now. She was 18 when I last saw her. And uh, I got in touch and it was her. 
and I went down to Sidmouth in Devon. Mansell came with me, mm. and we met her. I met this 70-year-old woman, OK? Uh, she wasn't quite like I remembered her. No, I, don't think you were, I don't think you were like she <laughs> No, I wasn't, <laughs> but uh, we all changed. We all matured. <laughs> and uh, it was lovely. I showed her the book. I yeah. wanted her to read it mm. to make sure there was nothing in there that she didn't like or yes. didn't approve of. Yeah. But our love story was as it was. And yeah. she, yes, you're it's right. Lovely. And her husband was quite happy with what happened and what went on. Well, he's got no choice. Now, Mansell, how did you feel meeting this woman, knowing that if your father had taken a different turn, that you wouldn't be here? (laughs) It was very surreal, thinking about it. And I was glad in a way. And I I was sitting down across that table, sitting with my husband. I, I said, I'm so relieved that their relationship finished. And he said, so am I, mate. And I, I, I hate we're too busy. To, them, to their failure, we clicked the glare, we had a drink, and we got on like a house on fire. Because at the end of the day, um, I wouldn't be here, as you say, um, and my brother Hayden. Yes. And, Her children and wouldn't be also there. His, my half-sister Tanya yeah. as well. So all three of us would have been snapped out at like a thing... Michael J. Fox movie. Right. But there we are. Right. Um, but it was important to understand the Australia story mm. and where it brings us t- today. Right. Now, Mansell, you're the business part of this partnership. Where do they get the book? They, you can get the book on Amazon.com, uh, com. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. I mean, we could have rabbited on for another 10 hours. In 77 years, you do a lot of things. But I think it was, it was, a, it was a very good interview, and uh, I'm very pleased you both came and you made the time to come into a community radio station and uh, give our regards to everybody back in the old dark when you get back. Certainly will. Thank you, Joe, for all you've done, and this lovely lady. Here. Dale, young Dale there. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Dale. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Dale.